Jeff White's website, Billy? So for those of you that are new, welcome. Thank you for coming. Um, thank you for uh, taking the risk and coming out to RUF and meeting new people and, um, you know, all the weirdness that that involves. And so I hope that you feel welcomed. I hope that you feel like you're um, meeting people here. It always takes... You know, it kind of like breaking the veil when you come into a new group. And so if you're an, if you're a regular attender here, our job, regular attenders, is to like go meet these people and new people. You have to like step out there and like say, hi, I'm so and so. So I know that that's hard sometimes, um, but just keep at it. And uh, so anyway, so we've been going through Exodus. We just started last week. Exodus chapter one. And this week we're going to look at Exodus chapter two, verses one to ten. And uh, this is really when Moses comes on the scene, when God is uh, bringing deliverance to his people who are in Egypt, who are under bondage. And when we looked at the situation last week, it was pretty dire. Um, what, what has happened is Israel has gone down to Egypt when Joseph was alive because of the famine. This is going back to Genesis chapter... 36 to 50, if you read there. There was a famine in the land. And so uh, Joseph goes down and he is used by God to basically bring deliverance to not just Egypt, but Israel and the world. And in the process, he brings Jacob and all his brothers come down there and they are saved. Now we're in a new generation and there's a new Pharaoh. There's a new sheriff in town, so to speak. And they've forgotten all about Joseph. They've forgotten all about um, the goodness and the salvation that Joseph actually brought to Egypt. They've forgotten about that. And all they know is that this group of Israelites is growing like crazy and they are afraid of them because they keep having babies and more babies and they multiply. It's like the Chia pet. They just keep, they keep growing and growing and growing. Okay? And, uh, and so now we come to the point where Pharaoh is enslaving Egypt and actually bringing about genocide. So that's the situation we find as we close out chapter 1. So chapter 2, uh, I'm going to read that. And God is in the process of, again, bringing a deliverer to bear. So hear God's word. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman, The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes. That's like just reeds, you know, like river reeds. And daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women? to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go! (laughs) So the girl went and called the child's mother. 
And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. Pretty good, huh? It's like her own baby. Now she's getting paid to nurse the baby. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Sends a reading of God's holy word. So I want to talk about Sunday night. So Sunday night, we were uh, over at my house. Some of us were over at my house. We were watching the Super Bowl. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Super Bowl uh, was the most watched sporting event in the history of television, which you saw Sunday night. U.S. television. U.S. television. Okay. All right. Sorry. U.S. television. That game you were watching, you were part of something big. Okay. The biggest sporting event watched in the U.S. Okay. That's true. Probably not the World Cup. Yeah, the World, World Cup is bigger. Yeah. So while we were there, there was something really crazy that happened. If you if, if you know the game, you know that New England won the game. But it didn't look like New England was going to win that game. Okay. Well, it was a back and forth game. Obviously, Seattle went ahead by ten points in the second half and third quarter. Then they stopped playing. Okay. And then what happened was at the very end of the game, New England goes ahead and they're ahead by four points. And Seattle has like, what, a minute and a half left with the ball? And they go down the field. There's this miraculous catch by Curse. What's Curse's first name? Jermaine. Jermaine Curse. I mean, the ball's like bouncing off his knee, his head. He's on the ground. He's rolling around. He catches it. He's on the five-yard line. Okay, so they've got the ball on the five-yard line with like a minute left. The next play, they give it to uh, the, the beast mode. Okay? <laughs> they give it to... Uh, what, what, so who's his name? Marshawn Lynch. I'm forgetting everything. Like they give it to Marshawn Lynch, and he goes to the one yard line. So they got second, third, and fourth down to go. They only have to go three feet. This guy like kills people when he runs the ball. Okay, just give him the ball. Okay. So New England is like they're they're done. They're sitting over there. Tom Brady's crying. He's like trying to find Giselle and get comfort. Um, it's bad. Okay. And then the most miraculous play happened on second down. Yeah, you're the only New England fan. No, no, there's two New England fans here, at least. Okay. Russell Wilson drops back. There's a screen. There's, I mean, a slant pass. He throws it instead of giving it to Marshawn Lynch, which everybody thought they were going to do. And this guy by the name of Malcolm, um, I can't even remember, Butler, jumps the route intercepts the ball. It's miraculous. It's miraculous for New England people. Okay? And uh, it's, it's amazing because he's like five foot nothing, a hundred nothing using Rudy lines. And he's a nobody. And this nobody, like in the middle of desperation, steps in and makes the biggest, probably the biggest defensive play in the history of the Super Bowl. And he was not even drafted. Okay, for people that don't know, the good players get drafted in, what, seven rounds? This guy was not even drafted. He came from this little college called um, Western Alabama University, Division II. Okay, he's five foot eleven. His first college was a community college in Mississippi, Heinz Community College. He got kicked off the team. And he was working at Popeye's for a while. Somehow he got back into football, goes to this other college. 
and uh, makes the team, and he does pretty well there. But this is Division Two. This is like so far from the NFL, it's not even funny. But somehow he goes to this tryout with other Alabama players and gets noticed by, I think, Green Bay and then New England, Bill Belichick. He likes to like find these diamonds in the rough, and he finds them. And he he didn't even didn't even look like he was going to make the Patriots, but somehow he made it. He got on the 90-man roster, and then he literally made the 53-man. And he's basically played on special teams all year, which are the guys that just do the kickoffs, and then they sit on the bench. Well, some guys got injured, and next thing you know, he is the man, you know, with, what, 40 seconds left or whatever it was, and he is in there, and he makes this amazing play. And so one of the greatest catches, and so (laughs) my point here is... When it looks like everything is gone, New England fans, when it looks like there's no way you're going to win, I mean, Marshawn Lynch is going to get... I mean, out of despair, out of despair comes salvation. Out of despair. And so that's really what I want to look at briefly in this passage. Out of despair comes salvation. And I hope I hope you really take that in, because really, as you look at the Scriptures, time and time again, that's what's going on. People are in despair. People are in darkness. All through the script, people are down. It's like the bottom of the ninth, two outs. I'm doing sports. <laughs> you know, your your team is behind. You need a grand slam. You got two strikes on you, and God comes through time and time again. Whether it's like you know Daniel in the lion's den, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, you know, or you know, you go into the you know, just crazy stories of deliverance. That's why the Bible is so wonderful, because we all need that. You know, when you think of your life, you think of the brokenness, you think of like, gosh, how am I ever going to get out of this school? How am I ever going to pass this test? Okay, how am I ever going to figure out how to ask a girl out or to get married? How am I ever going to be able to have a good relationship with my parents? We are in despair. We are weak people. We are broken people. We have addictions. We have all kinds of darkness in our life. And what we see in the Scriptures are people just like us and people being delivered. And so that's really what Exodus is. Exodus is all about God's people are broken. They're in bondage. They're in oppression. They're in slavery. And God is going to work this salvation. The last second of the play. Okay? When it looks like all hope is gone, God steps in. And so... We're just going to look at this. We can have hope and despair because God is bringing victory and deliverance in the midst of defeat. And so the first thing I want you to notice up here is there's hope through a new family. Okay, now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. Now think about that. In chapter 1, what you had is oppression. You had Pharaoh who didn't know anything about Joseph. There was harsh labor going on. The Israelites are now enslaved. They're working with brick and mortar. They have harsh slave masters over them. This is slavery. Not only that, but then there's genocide. They're saying every Hebrew boy should be killed. Okay, in that situation, do you think it's good to start a family? Doesn't sound like a good time to start a family. It sounds like a time just to be depressed. And to just like hunker away and say, I can't do anything. I'm not going to like start a relationship with this woman. I mean, we don't know where we're going to, we're going to be destroyed. We're in slavery. 
But what happens is a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman, and they had a they started a family. I think if you look under the surface, what you're going to see is that these people had hope. In the midst of their situation, they knew that the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was a living God. They knew the stories about Adam and Eve. They knew the stories about Noah. They knew the stories about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they knew that God was their God. And they were the children of Levi, one of the twelve sons. And if you look forward, Levites become the priests of God. They haven't gotten there yet. But what they had was hope. What they had was in the midst of really depressing, they went back and they went back and they understood, no, God is alive. Even though we're, even though this is really looking dark here and we're in slavery, God is alive. God is going to help us. And I am attracted to that Levite woman over there. It's probably her cousin back then. And they get married and they have a, they have a child. That is hope in the midst of despair. And so God is bringing this about. Uh, <laughs> He is bringing about light. He's bringing about hope. Um, you know, and think about this for the audience. Who was reading these books way back when? You know who was reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? The, they call it the Pentateuch, the five books of the law of Moses. Moses was com- compilating and putting together all of these books of the Old Testament for his people. Okay, it's it's, I mean... In seminary, they taught us this. That Moses was the compiler. He was bringing together all these stories. He was receiving God's Word. He was inspired God's Word. And he was putting these stories together. These stories is what Israel were reading. They were reading these stories when they were in the desert. Okay, after all of this goes on. So they're seeing this and they're saying, hey, we're in the desert. We're in the wilderness. But look what God is doing. Back years ago, our forefathers, they were, they were in tough times too. But God was blessing them and God was doing something. So there, so this is what we're having here. A family is a blessing. Children are a blessing from the Lord. There's a church downtown called Grace DC that my, my niece goes to, and I, sometimes I'll go down there. It's uh, in Chinatown. It's a wonderful church. They have a five o'clock service. And, uh, actually a friend of mine, Glenn Hoberg, is a pastor there. He used to do RUF at Harvard, believe it or not. And now he's been in D.C. for about 12 years. It's a wonderful church. But they do this thing. Whenever a couple in that church has a baby, after the service, they, they'll acknowledge this new baby that's there and they'll hoist the baby. And so they call it like, let's give a hoist to, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith or whoever it is. And, you know, they'll hoist the baby up and everybody will clap and, you know, cheer. And it's like this beautiful picture of the blessing of God. You know, a family is a blessing of God. A child is a blessing of God. And so that's kind of what's what's happening here. Everybody claps, everybody shouts. Um, you know, and, and really it's, it's interesting because if you trace all through the scriptures, you see children as being one of these the babies being born are this source of joy. You know, just think about some of these amazing births. Isaac is born to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. They were barren. Okay? Wow. This amazing thing. God is giving His promise. Samuel the prophet is born to Hannah, who was barren. Okay? At the, at the, uh, at the temple. 
and then Samuel becomes this prophet. You fast forward, or actually in the Old Testament, Ruth, who was a widow, a Moabitess from outside of Israel. She loses her husband. She becomes this widow, but stays with Naomi. I'm summarizing the whole story of Ruth. Stays with Naomi, her mother-in-law, and then God intervenes and like gives her this husband who happens to be from Bethlehem. And they have a child, and then she becomes the great-grandmother of David. I mean, there's kind of all of these these babies and these families, this stream of of blessing that God gives. And then you have, even in the New Testament, John the Baptist is born to Elizabeth. Some of you guys looked at that passage in small group. And that's a blessing. And then that leads to Jesus, this miracle baby conceived by the Holy Spirit. But I think what this tells us, again, is that because you're the people of God, we should be people who are full of hope because... Um, because we have a God of hope. And it seems like we should just hunker down and if things are going bad, we should just like, you know, let's just just wait till Jesus comes back. Or, you know, the world is the, the expression going to hell in a handbasket. You know, it's, it's just going to pot, you know. And what we have in the Scriptures is people being full of hope. And they are enjoying the blessings of God and they're they're having a family. And when Israel was down in exile in Babylon years later, in Jeremiah 29, if you ever want to read an amazing passage, read Jeremiah 29 because they were in exile, they were in a similar situation in bondage. And Jeremiah told them, here's what God wants you guys to do. Build houses, plant gardens, marry one another, um, have children, pray for the city, bless the city, because God wants to bless this place where you are. So it was not like pull back and wait. It was like live your life. You're God's people. Have hope. He's there. He's with you. He's going to help you. He's going to encourage you. So one of the questions I had, just to pause for a second, is where do you, where do you place your hope when things get tough? Where do you place your hope? When things get tough, maybe it's the stress of school or disappointment. Where do you run? Do you run? Do you run to the God of the Bible of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who is this Lord who is going to help you, this provider, this one full of hope, or do you medicate yourself with various things, just idols of entertainment? I mean, it could be. Darker things like substances or alcohol or pornography or you name it. I mean, this is what, this is what we do. This is what, this is what people do. When things get hard, we run to these idols and we say, our hope is in this. And then it crumbles. And Jesus is saying, come to me. I'll quench your thirst. I'll give you ultimate hope. So one question just to take with you tonight is where do you place your hope? When things get tough, are you going back to God or are you seeking something else to give you hope? The second thing is this. It's not just hope that God is creating a family, but it's the fact that this child is actually the deliverer. Okay, so it's not just that they're having hope in God and they're having a family, any kind of family. This is the family. This is the savior of 
Israel at this point in history. Moses. So God is, is bringing about redemption and he's bringing it about through Moses. And so you have this interesting story of um, the edict that all babies are going to be killed. All male babies are going to be killed. And so they end up having this boy. They nurse him and then they devise a plan. The plan is, let's try to get Pharaoh's daughter to take in Moses, to take in this baby. And so Miriam is the sister. She's not named here, but she's named later on in Exodus. Miriam is the older sister of Moses and the mother. And so they make this bulrush uh, basket. They pitch it with tar and they float Moses in there along the reeds when Pharaoh's daughter and her attendants are coming down to bathe. And lo and behold, the plan works. The plan works. And they see Moses and they go and he's crying. And of course, Pharaoh's daughter is, we didn't know this, but she's taken by him and wants, and wants to have him. And, uh, and so it's really amazing because, uh, she ends up, the, Miriam is there and Miriam's like, oh, should I call a Hebrew woman to nurse the baby? And it's like, yeah, good idea. Let's do that. And then, you know, so it's amazing. And then I'm going to pay you as well for having your child, at least for a little while. But, Here's what I want to point out in this, and I want to see if you guys see some of these parallels, but um, there's lots of redemption themes in this passage. So she, so the basket, the word for basket in the Hebrew is the same word used in Genesis 6 for ark. Okay, it's called teba. Think about this. Moses is in this basket. And guess what the basket has on it? It's got pitch. Does that ring any bells? When when Noah was building the ark, God said, I want you to cover it with pitch because that's going to make it waterproof. So, so this ark in Genesis 6 is now that saved God's people, Noah and his family, from the destruction of water, is now saving Moses out of the destruction of the Nile. This ark. And so, Noah was, Noah was what God was doing in Genesis 6. He was saving his people out of judgment, out of watery death, by a boat, an ark with pitch. And here the Lord is saving Moses, his deliverer, out of water with an ark that's covered with pitch. He's saved out of the water. And it's a pointer ahead as well because Moses will be the one who will lead his people ultimately out of the water when God splits the Red Sea. Okay, so you have this picture of deliverance in Genesis 6 with Noah and his family being delivered. And then ultimately with Moses, he becomes the deliverer that brings his people out of Egypt through the water, through the Red Sea by God's power. So you have this deliverer and then his name. His name is, I drew him out of water. I mean, it's pregnant, so to speak, with foreshadowing as we think about what God will do through him. He's going to use Moses as the ultimate deliverer for his people out of the water. They're going to come through the Red Sea. They're going to be delivered from Egypt. They're going to be delivered from sin, from death, 
from everything, the slavery and the bondage of Egypt. And so it's ultimately a pointer ahead as well. Because Jesus was also the one saved out of water. What I mean is, his baptism is often talked about the baptism of his death. And then his resurrection to life. And so, Moses is the lesser Jesus. And in Hebrews, it talks about how, you know, uh, Moses was a prophet, priest, and king, but Jesus is the ultimate prophet, prophet, priest, and king. He's the ultimate Moses that delivered his people out of the judgment of sin. And so, God is, is basically building, building his deliverance story right here with Moses. In fact, all of the Old Testament, most of the passages point back to God's ultimate deliverance here in Egypt with His people. And it also points forward because it's, it's painting the picture for what Jesus is ultimately going to do. And so, we should have hope because ultimately, it's not just that God is building this family, but He's actually building, He's giving us a deliverer, Moses, who's a pointer to Jesus. So do you have hope in that? Do you see that when you're in awful times, You're looking at Jesus. You're looking at the one who actually went to death, went to the grave, and was resurrected for you. The last thing is this. We can have hope because of this unusual grace that happens in this story. In the passage, there's that interesting conversation between Miriam, the sister, asking Pharaoh's daughter, if she should go and find a Hebrew woman to nurse the baby for her, and she, she commands her to go and, and to get her mother. And so she goes and gets her mother. And what I want to point out is, isn't this interesting? Think about this. So God's enemy is Pharaoh. But God has his people everywhere. Even Pharaoh's daughter is being used by God for his plan. You know, she is the she is the enemy. It's her father that made the edict to kill all the Hebrew babies. It's his her father that said you're going to be in slavery. Well, God is using even his enemies to bring about the deliverance of his people to literally raise up Moses. Moses is in two families. Maybe some of you have that feeling in your in your background. He he's got his Hebrew family because he's born of the Hebrews, but he grew up in really the palace with Pharaoh, with his mother. He had two moms, ultimately. And we can't overlook the fact that this is God's grace using Pharaoh's daughter to bring about the raising of Moses, our deliverer. I mean, it's really interesting. So God is using even an enemy in His plan of salvation and deliverance for His people. And so, what I want to say is, like, God's not limited, you know, to some sort of, like, Christian realm that we might think, or church, you know. The God who created the universe and everything we see um, is powerful, He's sovereign, He's in control. There was a, a theologian by the name of Abraham Kuyper that said this phrase. He said, there's not one square inch in the universe where the Lord Jesus doesn't say, mine. There's not one square inch in the universe that the Lord Jesus doesn't say, mine. He uses all things 
to work for His good. In fact, Romans 8, some of you might know that verse. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. All things for good. This this got to give you hope. Israel in slavery with an edict of annihilation, of genocide. And God is using the enemy's daughter to bring about the salvation of His people. That's the kind of God you have. That's the kind of God we serve. There's no dark hole that you can say, God God can't get there. There's, there's nothing you can do. There's no place you can be in your life. You know, you think about Syria and ISIS and all the horrible things that are going on there. And what if you were there? And there's people over there. I saw something this morning. Just awful things are happening. And we might think, like, where, where could God ever be? Well, God is there. Somehow He's working. Somehow He's doing things. We don't understand everything. But we have to believe that just like in this time, God was using and He was building His kingdom, and He's still doing that today. And why do we know that? Because we know Jesus came, and He died, and He rose again, and He ascended on high. And He's coming back. We're in that in-between period. Things look dark. But God is doing His will. And He's even using He's even using the most unlikely people to do it. So be aware of that as you think about your friends, your family, people around you, your teachers, professors, thing, people that you think, oh gosh, how could God ever get a hold of them? God uses people for His good. And so if you're feeling hopeless... Think about the psalmist in 42.5 where he said, in the midst of despair, why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And then he says this, hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. The story of Exodus in the Bible is one of hope in the midst of despair because God is the God of all hope. God is the God who places His people and uses even His enemies for His glory. And He ultimately delivers us. So let me pray and then we'll close with a song. Jesus, thank You that You are a God who gives hope. Lord, and You didn't just say these things from on high, but You entered in. Jesus entered into our darkest world, full of sin, was broken, was crushed, was ultimately raised again from the dead. And so, Jesus, thank You that we have a God that knows what it's like to suffer, knows what it's like to be left alone in despair. And yet, Jesus, through that, Lord, You saved us. You saved Your people and You deeply love us. So, Lord, help us have hope wherever we are tonight, whatever situations we're going through. Lord, that You would be our hope. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.